Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having fun sharing with you. But before I begin, I wanted to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming an Algonquin Defining Moments patron. As I'm sure you can imagine, Researching and compiling these stories is no easy matter, and very time-consuming, especially since so many great Algonquin Park human history books are now out of print. To do so, just go to my AlgonquinParkHeritage.com website and click on the Be a Patron button. With four levels of support to choose from, there should be something for everyone. But if instead you'd rather just buy a t-shirt or a coffee mug or other merch, click the Gifts and Gears button. You can also go to my show page, www.podbean.com, and click there on the Become a Patron button on the top right corner. Either way, thanks in advance for your continued support. In the last episode, I shared some of the findings on wolf pups from Douglas Pimlot's groundbreaking research during 1958 to 1962 on the wolves of Algonquin Park. In this episode, I'm going to share more of what he and his researchers uncovered as it relates to how wolves move, what they eat, how they establish territory, and of course, wolf vocalization. As mentioned previously, my research and reading for these episodes on Algonquin Park's wolves has been extensive, so I wanted to bring everything I've learned into one place and share it as even-handedly as I can. With that in mind, there's an extensive list of references in the show notes on my Algonquin Defining Moments show site on www.podbean.com. There is, of course, much paraphrasing that I hope you won't mind from this list of references that have informed much of this specific episode. Russell Rutter and Douglas Pimlot's 1967 book, The World of the Wolf, Pimlot, Shannon, and Kalinowski's 1969 Department of Lands and Forests report on the ecology of the timber wolf, John Theberge's 1975 Wolf in the Wilderness, Dan Strickland's Wolf Howling Technical Bulletin Number 88, several articles that were part of a tribute to Douglas Pimlot after his 1978 death, including those from Lou Carbine, Bruce Littlejohn, John Theberge, and Theodore Mosquin. George Wereke's 2021 biography, Douglas Pimlot and the Preservationists in Algonquin Provincial Park, 1958-1974, to 1974, and a 1993 Ravens Newsletter article called Ravens Through the Window. One key part of the Wolf's research program was the collection and analysis of Wolfscat. During the survey period, 1,435 scats were collected. contained deer, 8.5% moose, 7% beaver, and the balance contained rodents and other small animals. Though known to kill foxes, otters, fishers, and martens if they are encountered by accident, never was there a case where any of these animals had been eaten. Interestingly, those proportions were generally the same whether it was summer or winter. The average pack had less than 10 animals and occupied a territory that was approximately one wolf for every 10 square miles. Hunting in packs makes sense, as wolves are what they call cursorial or running animals, and aren't designed to stalk or pounce like lions or cheetahs. But if the pack gets too big, then regularly feeding every member becomes a challenge. 
The packs they researched, though, did show a specific social hierarchy that included both an alpha male and an alpha female, who are the breeding pair, and a varying collection of juveniles. Often there was also, for whatever reasons, one wolf that was considered socially unacceptable and excluded from normal pack activity. Called the peripheral wolf, the general thinking at the time was that perhaps this reflected some kind of group psychological need. Because if that particular wolf died or was removed for whatever reason, another pack member immediately would take its place. As the Pimlot research team got better and better at tracking the wolves, they began to see that pack movements seemed to follow some kind of pattern. A central ring seemed to correspond to summer movements, a wider ring, the fall range, and in winter the pack would travel in a ring that went to the limits of their territory. As Pimlot wrote in The World of the Wolf, while a pack utilizes its whole territory, they may use some parts of it much more than others and may visit some sections only once or twice a year. This uneven use could be affected by the den location and the distribution of prey species. Though the packs traveled a lot, especially in winter, the locations that they went to didn't seem to follow any apparent purpose. Though, as we will discuss in the next episode, the following of migrating deer out of the park in deep winter seemed to be the exception. Territory limits were defended but not necessarily marked with scent posts and corresponded approximately to one wolf for every 10 square miles, as I mentioned. Packs in the north seemed to be larger than those in the southern parts of Algonquin Park, with the Berges research indicating that their foy pack seemed to occupy the largest at 275 square miles. Wolves, it also turns out, have three gates, walking, trotting, and galloping. The trotting gait is a sort of loose-jointed jog trot and is generally used when moving from place to place. Wolves can trot at speeds of about five miles an hour and can keep up that pace for a long time. Galloping is reserved for pursuing game or when playing amongst themselves. In winter, they usually travel in single file through snow, which enables the laying down of specific trails in the winter. Deer, it seems, are easier and less dangerous to kill than moose, but the process is never done with the kind of military precision that is often attributed to them. Wolf packs do deploy simple devices such as ambushing, heading off, and trying to knock an animal off its feet, but the preferred tactic is surprise, a sudden dash, and a short chase. Deer are run down from behind, with the wolves going after the unprotected abdominal region just ahead of the hind legs. Interestingly enough, often the deer is knocked to the ground two or three times before it is killed. It's unusual to find any wounds ahead of the shoulders, with most in-flight biting action aimed at the hind flanks and abdomen, or at the flanks and the head region simultaneously. Moose are attacked generally the same way, though moose often will not run from wolves. They prefer to stand their ground, and a healthy adult usually has no difficulty repelling even a large pack. This means that wolves tend to seek out weak, elderly, or injured moose. Their research showed that though wolves do have sensitive and educated noses at close range, the habit attributed to them of testing the air with their nose was not noticed. Most of the time, wolf kills were eaten entirely. Research between 1995 and 2008 on the diets of wolves on Ile Royale in the wilderness island in Lake Superior near Thunder Bay 
found that wolves typically consumed between 91 and 95 percent of the edible portions of a carcass. All kinds of other creatures were often attracted to the kills, including ravens, gray jays, foxes, fishers, martens, flying squirrels, and even the occasional bald or gold eagle. Hunting, it turns out, was not instinctive. It was a learned by experience process, took lots of time, and many opportunities for a pack's hunting patterns and therefore their success to develop. One interesting side story is how ravens often helped researchers find carcasses that have been brought down by wolves. As noted in a Raven newsletter article from September 1993 called Ravens Through the Window, ravens live year-round in Algonquin Park and survive in the winter by finding the remains of dead animals. Ravens have amazing eyesight and are uncannily efficient at finding these rare and very widely scattered food sources. It is their commotion that often alerts researchers and still does today where wolf prey remains are hidden. According to my book of animal totem, Medicine Cards, ravens are also the carriers of magic and the messengers that carry all energy flows between ceremony and the ceremony's intended destination. With this in mind, it's curious to wonder how it is that 40 or 50 of these birds can suddenly be found croaking, gurgling, and yelling around a deer carcass when normally they live in territories spread out across hundreds of square miles. Well, according to naturalist Dr. Bernd Heinrich, as outlined in this raven article, it turns out that ravens, upon discovering a bonanza food source, often actively recruit fellow ravens to share in the feast. Heinrich found this out by spending four years in the 1980s hauling tons of slaughterhouse offal into the woods of Maine and using it to attract and study ravens, a very difficult challenge as ravens are very shy of people. Well, it seems that raven society usually consists of a few older breeders that own and usually stay inside definite territories. In addition are a more numerous class of young non-breeding birds that have no fixed address and wander widely looking for food. Dead animal carcasses are usually discovered by resident raven pairs on their own territories. The local pair will start to feed on it immediately and do nothing to let other birds know what they have found. Eventually, though, one of these wandering young ravens discovers the carcass and the feeding pair. Instead of attempting to join in the snack, most wanderers start yelling. But it's a specific type of call. This is because the resident pair will often be ready and willing to attack the interloper if it tries to come down from the trees to feed with them. Though ravens typically vocalize with a wide variety of croaks, screams, gurgles, and squawks, they only use this particular call when at or near a carcass. From far away, another wandering bird hears that specific call and comes to investigate. It joins in the yelling until there are quite a few. Nine birds, it seems, is the magic number, where resistance by the founding pair is useless. The feeding pair give up their harassment of the newcomers, and then the whole throng feeds on the carcass. It's intriguing to wonder how on earth these birds evolved such a unique and interesting survival strategy. In 1743, Mark Catesby wrote that wolves go in droves by night with dismal yelling cries, referring, of course, to a typical wolf howl. Later analysis of howl sounds by Dr. John Tiberge indicated that a howl's composition 
has a harmonic structure, similar to that of the human voice or of musical instruments. The bears went on to suggest that wolf singing was actually a much better description than the word howling. However, I don't know about you, but wolf singing just doesn't have the same je ne sais quoi, and going on a public wolf sing doesn't seem to be as nearly as exotic as a public wolf howl. Anyway, as you'll recall previously, though wolves were easy to spot and track in winter, it was nigh near impossible in the summer. Whilst musing on this problem, a colleague, Yorkie Edwards, who later worked with the Canadian Wildlife Service in the Provincial Museum in Victoria, British Columbia, suggested that maybe the playing of wolf recordings at night might trigger an answer from any wolf that happened to be within range. Boy, did he ever turn out to be right, though later it became clear that wolves would respond to human imitations as well as many other types of sounds, including army bugles. Dr. W. Gunn, who I mentioned in the last episode, was an expert and noted pioneer recorder of bird songs. He was invited to record some of the captive wolves, coyotes, and coyote-dog hybrids that were being kept at the Wildlife Research Station in 1959. As noted in the Wolf Howling Technical Bulletin number 88, in August 1959, the team went out at dusk and, lo and behold, got a response on the first try. This technique was initially used to find and estimate the number of wolves, but later researchers used it to study the summer movements and habits of these wolves. This included Jocelyn in 1967, Voigt in 1973, and Carbine in 1979. Thiberge and Dr. Falls, who you met in the History of the Wildlife Research Station, published in 1967 an assessment of the biological significance of howling itself. This later work also showed that dominant wolves were more likely to respond to human howls and in late summer. And young wolves, if they're hanging out at well-known rendezvous sites, are ready to howl at anything and don't really care where the stimulus comes from. This fact led to the development of the Algonquin Park public wolf howl, which I'll talk about in a few moments. First, some wolf howl facts that Pimlot's research showed. Well, it turns out that folk tales that suggest that wolves howl for specific reasons aren't true. Wolves don't howl when they're chasing prey, and they don't howl when they're about to make a kill, nor afterwards. There's also no evidence that other animals in the forest even react to wolf howls any differently than they do to other normal sounds of the forest. Surprisingly enough, even deer don't seem to associate the sound of wolves and wolf howls with danger. The best howling times turn out to be in the fall, and they can be just about anywhere, a swamp, a hilltop, wherever. Most of the time, wolves howl standing up, but sometimes they do so sitting, which is the common stereotype. If a pack starts howling, the animals often mill about, walking up and down and weaving in and out amongst themselves. Lots of times, the wolves will spontaneously start howling for no apparent reason, more often in the evening and to a lesser extent in early morning. Howling is usually initiated by one wolf, and that for whatever reason is most inclined, though the one that does is not always the pack leader. Some wolves are capable of barking, but a barking wolf is heard infrequently. For example, in the summer of 1964, there was never a bark from the Sunday Creek pack, 
but barking was always conspicuous with the Madawaska pack. Howling and maybe even barking might be how wolves locate each other when separated. What was even more surprising to the researchers was, as Pimlot wrote, that the voice of each wolf would come in at a different pitch, possibly by design, but probably because each wolf had a different vocal range. Some wolves had a deep bass, others a high tenor. And when a wolf howls, it shapes its mouth carefully and usually closes its eyes. Individuals will answer an indefinite number of times, but the individual howl rarely lasts more than five seconds. Excited wolves howl at a higher pitch than normal. Analysis by John Tiberge and J. Bruce Falls in 1964-65 of the howls of the three captive wolves at the Wildlife Research Station suggested that wolf howl individuality was due to, quote, individual preferences for type of beginning, type of ending, pitch changes in the midsection of the howls, and significantly different average highest notes, lowest notes, and lengths. In other words, individual wolves had characteristic harmonically related overtones in their howls that could serve to identify them, and that wolves could distinguish amongst these overtones more accurately than humans. This suggested that howls of different individuals were at least potentially recognizable by other wolves. Wolves can pinpoint the sound from a distance of well over two kilometers, as shown by the frequency with which they would come to the exact place where the thebergias were howling. And when wolves heard human howls, they often responded by reflex. At other times, they would come to investigate, sometimes howling back first, but often arriving silently. As Thebers wrote, the wolves would discover us, then leave to continue whatever it was they were doing. Unfortunately, the Tibergias learned the hard way that when humans howled near dens or rendezvous sites in the spring or early summer, it could cause the pack to move out, carrying the pups with them. Once they figured that out, researchers rarely howled in spring or throughout the summer. They would camp near known rendezvous sites and monitor any spontaneous howling that resulted. Once, in response to Mary Tiberge's single howl, a solitary wolf, about 300 meters away, replied a record 200 times. Normally, wolves howl maybe 3 or 4 up to 10 to 12 times. First came mouthed over bark howls, short in length and treble in pitch. Then 25 of them were followed by a brief pause and 46 more. Another pause lasted for 3 minutes and then 15 longer howls, a 3-minute pause and 21 more, a 2-minute pause and 36 more. These ones were long, less treble, and breaking. The changes in howls may have reflected the wolf's shifting emotional state, gradually becoming less perturbed by their auditory intrusions into its world. Group howls, on the other hand, typically lasted for no more than 30 seconds, though sometimes they'd been known to go on for a minute. The sound would die down and then sometimes pick up again, but would grow progressively weaker and less enthusiastic, and then just fade away. Pinlock speculated that perhaps howling was tiring for them, as rarely would they howl again until at least 30 minutes had passed. It was unclear what, if any, message was communicated with the group howl, though Pimlot suggested that maybe it was territorial in some way. 
When observed, though, group howls seem to be a spontaneous combustion of excitement, with wolves running around or grouping and jumping together with their tails flicking. There did, however, seem to be some correlation, as the bears discovered in later decades, between howling and movements. Every time the pack howled, either one or more collared wolves had just returned or left. Although sometimes they were silent, others were filled with howls. He speculated that the difference perhaps was related to hunting success, or to a decision to change the rendezvous site, or to trespass or some other wolf-related social event. I think it's time for another musical interlude, and let's listen to Return to the Pack, another of Dan Gibson's marvelous Wolf Howl musical compositions from his album Algonquin Suite.
As I shared in episode 27 on the history of the park interpretive program, the first public wolf howl happened in August 1963. It was a collaborative effort between the park naturalist Grant Taylor, Douglas Pimlot, and Russ Rudder. As Pimlot recalled in 1977 and was quoted in Algonquin Park, A Place Like No Other, we thought that there might be 30 or 40 or 50 people gathered at Lake of Two Rivers. I think there were 186 cars in the cavalcade, close to 600 people, as Dan Strickland noted, and to put it mildly, the OPP were quite disturbed. The OPP officer met us at about mile 30, and we had a massive traffic tie-up. He wasn't much impressed with it at all. We didn't really hear a pack that night. We heard a single wolf howling near the east gate, and I think possibly a single at Sunday Creek. This event, though, triggered an avalanche of interest, and by 1987, 53 events had been held, hosting 52,833 people, an average of nearly 1,000 people per outing. Most importantly, 62% of the time, wolves were heard. So how did this degree of success actually happen? Well, according to Dan Strickland's Wolf Howling Technical Bulletin number 88, here's how it all happened. Normally, the public wolf howls was scheduled for a Thursday, with the announcement going out that morning, only if park officials had heard wolves the night before, at one or two predefined locations suitable for a large group of people. Some years, there would be only one, and sometimes as many five wolf howls in a season. To find the packs, two teams of wolf howlers, who of course were summer naturalists in disguise, would go out on a Tuesday and Wednesday nights, for three to four hours starting the last week of July until late August to see if they could find the packs. They would cover sometimes as much as 80 kilometers of public highway and associated secondary roads. If a suitable location and pack was found, word would go out and announcements would be posted all along the highway to advise of the event. Meanwhile, a team of 12 to 16 park staff with four or five radio-equipped vehicles was organized and a two-page battle plan created. This plan outlined the specific duties of each team member. 
Everyone would meet an hour before the event was to start, and the battle plan would be reviewed in detail again with any other needed equipment such as walkie-talkies, traffic safety vests, flashlights handed out. The crew would then head to the Lake of Two Rivers Outdoor Theater, where all of the visitors interested in participating were to meet. Given that traffic jams on Highway 60 had to be minimized, and the maximum capacity at both Lake of Two Rivers and the location where they were going to find the pack limited how many cars could be accommodated. One year, at an event in 1971, over a thousand people were turned away. At the Lake of Two Rivers Outdoor Theater, things would begin it with a 30-minute illustrated talk about wolves that included their life history, ecology, management, and the research program, and the development of wolf howling. They also included a tape recording of a pack of wolves responding to human howls. Once the formal part of the program concluded, a short explanation of the pack searching process and other preparations that would make it all possible took place. The howlers demonstrated their howling techniques, and participants were given detailed instructions as to how they were expected to behave. This involved turning off all car lights and the ignition once they all got to the location and to wait quietly beside their cars. I know it's hard to believe that a thousand people in 250 cars were and still are, when the howls are able to be held today, able to park and wait in absolute silence for the experience of a lifetime to unfold, which it usually did. After the first howl and answer, the group would wait 10 minutes and then would try again. After the second attempt, everyone would return to their cars and head back to their campsites and lodges. As Strickland wrote in 1988, when a pack of wolves breaks out with a tremendous clamor a few hundred meters away under a star-studded sky, even a seasoned wolf howler is likely to feel as though the hair on the back of their necks wants to stand on end. There's little doubt that the howling of wolves arouses deep emotions in human beings. Perhaps it is the awakening of a buried wish for the wild freedom of remote ancestors, the mystery of an animal that responds to us but which we almost never see, the thrill of direct communication with a legendary outlaw that has resisted for centuries our efforts to destroy it, the magic of a night in wolf country, including even that tinge of fear carried over from childhood wolf stories. Whatever the exact reason, the impact is profound. By the mid-1970s, there was a major shift in public image of the wolf from a mysterious, fearsome beast to the very symbol of the wild country people come to enjoy in Algonquin today. It is clear that the interpretive use of wolf howling made a significant contribution. In 2013, the program celebrated its 50th anniversary with over 2,000 people in 500 cars listening in silence along Highway 60. It was still a thrilling experience. Unfortunately, increased highway traffic and safety requirements have made it virtually impossible to conduct wolf howls along Highway 60 any longer. And though they continue, it is mostly on secondary roads to the main highway corridor. I'm not sure that the success rate is the same, but nevertheless, the public wolf howl remains, quote, a signature Canadian experience, an important part of the Algonquin Park Interpretive Program. In the end, one of the most important research findings from Pimlot's work was that the Algonquin Park wolf population remained essentially stable. 
it also appeared to be self-regulatory, with high mortality during the first and second year of life the major mechanism involved. Based on these results, Pimlot believed very strongly that wolf control needed to be replaced with a concept called wolf management. This for him meant preservation in some parks, elimination from areas that were mostly livestock-producing areas, and perhaps even game status in other areas. Alas, he didn't have high hopes that more understanding of the ecology of wolves would do much at that time. And as he said, it's not the science of wolves, but human attitudes towards them that will determine their future. I hope that my grandchildren and their grandchildren will know a world in which man not only tolerates the wolf, but accepts him as a desirable member of the total community. And as Tiberge, whose work we'll talk about in the next episode, went on to say, there really is no limit to what might be accomplished if the people interested in and willing to fight for wolves stopped making excuses for them and worked to give them their proper place in the sun. In conclusion, wolves do not consider men as prey. But, as Pimlot wrote, quote, wolves do have a tremendous ability to read signs and instinctively recognize aggression, fear, and other qualities of mind which are evidenced in subtle ways by people's expressions and actions. Stalking, moving through woods and streams deliberately, all of which suggest that they view us as superior predators, not prey. There are also subliminal characteristics of the human mind that also influence wolf behavior, in the same way that dogs are able to anticipate human behavior. Men and wolves, however, do have a few things in common. Both developed ways to cooperatively and purposefully hunt in groups. Both males and females raise the young, and close relationships are maintained with their young throughout the juvenile period. But most importantly, both species are successful because of their capacity to adapt rapidly to changing factors in their environment. As was noted in the 1930s, amidst the best efforts of park officials, wolves were not eradicated in Algonquin Park, and we are all today thankful that that was the case. In 1962, Pimlot resigned from the park's wolf study program and took up a teaching position at the University of Toronto's zoology department, the old stomping grounds of J.R. Diamond whom I've mentioned previously. Cross appointed in 1969 to the Department of Forestry, he had the opportunity to influence a future generation of foresters. Up until that time, students had been taught only utilitarian approach to the forest, which focused on maximizing annual harvests with little sensitivity to ecology or wildlife or even the human use of Algonquin Park. At the same time, Concerned that there was no management plan for Algonquin Park, he spent a lot of time trying to generate public and media support for a more preservationist orientation. He not only wrote journal articles, but also organized conferences, distributed information to newspapers, lobbied politicians, and spoke to conservation groups. Luckily at that time, in the mid-1960s, the environmentalist movement and wilderness protection was just starting to take hold in Ontario. In 1963, the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, CEPAWS, was established, though then called the National and Provincial Parks Association of Canada, NPPAC. 
Pimlott was one of the originators of the idea that we all now take for granted, that park classification should be based on what the area has to offer and the type of use that could be made without the land's degradation. In other words, that there would be significant benefits that could be accrued if different types of parks were classified, zoned, and managed for different types of users. Pimlott also felt that the park system needed to be extended, including the reservation of complete areas that would only be used for research purposes. Every park and land reserve needed a master plan that would detail all of the ecological resources, use zones, and related management goals and practices. By 1967, Pimlott realized that he had to figure out a way to create a coalition of hunters, anglers, wilderness trippers, naturalists, scientists, conservations, and recreation planners, if there was to be any possibility of success in pushing back the forest industry and related government bureaucrats interested in maintaining the status quo. As George Warecki wrote, quote, On a cold winter night, as the wolves howled across Clark Lake near Algonquin Park's east gate, Pimlod and various allies resolved to create a new kind of advocacy group that was destined to become Ontario's most outspoken and politically effective association for wilderness protection. The Algonquin Wildlands League began with nine members on a blustery September day on an island in Source Lake in 1968. The overall goal was to ensure that the heritage of Algonquin and other parks in Ontario, significant for their natural characteristics, shall be passed on to succeeding generations. Pimlott was a major player, and as Wareki shared, he was the leader. He educated everybody on what needed to be done and could be called at any time for advice and support. As Bruce Littlejohn noted, Pimlott provided the general direction and philosophical basis for the group's work. We frequently went into battle using maps that were largely of his devising. As Pimlott understated much later, well, I guess at times I was a good catalyst. A catalyst because he knew how to assess the needs of the group and recruit other people who could help. This was especially important because the goal was to be a political pressure group. One really important addition was Walter Gray, a Toronto-based public relations executive who had at one time been Ottawa bureau chief for the Globe and Mail newspaper from 1960 to 1963 and the Toronto Star from 1967 to 1968. Gray knew everything that there was to know about how to contact the media, how to write press releases, when to issue them, in order to reach a wide audience, and of course how to do so in such a way that would create news. Under his guidance, as Wareki wrote, the Algonquin Wildlands League effectively employed newspapers, television, radio, letters to the editor, and letter-writing campaigns by citizens that were designed to bombard politicians and civil servants. All of these battles were designed with a specific message in mind. Public meetings and panel discussions were advertised with interested parties encouraged to attend. Such meetings generated not just good media copy, but also increased public awareness about the issues facing Algonquin Park. At the same time, it raised the Algonquin Wildlands League's public profile to such a degree that within two years the group had over 1,500 members. Pimlot, however, chose not to be front and center for the group. His view was that a local businessman with local roots would be a better choice to lead the charge, and so he recruited C. Abbott Conway to become the Algonquin Wildlands League's first president.
Conway had been born and raised in Huntsville, had attended Taylor Statton's Camp Amick, learned how to paddle at the knees of Bill Stokwa from the nearby Golden Lake First Nation, who had taught canoeing at the camp, and had enormous enthusiasm for political combat. Graduating from the University of Toronto in 1936 in early law, he spent most of his career in the tanning business. Familiar with Algonquin and its operations, Conway was, quote, dismayed by the destruction impact of modern year-long mechanized logging on the park's recreational and aesthetic values. In 1967, the Department of Lands and Forests introduced the idea of a park classification system, which included protecting wilderness areas as primitive parks. Unfortunately, when implemented, not one of the existing large northern Ontario parks, including Quetico, Killarney, Lake Superior, or Algonquin, was so designated. Now, to be truthful, even with the best of intents, the history of Algonquin Park as a multi-use park and the socio-economic and political importance of logging to the local communities and to the province as a whole would have made establishing it as a primitive park really difficult. But there was no reason why certain parts of it couldn't have been, which was what Pimlot and Conway encouraged. Their original proposal to the Department of Lands and Forests was that 50% of Algonquin, including the Western Uplands section, be zoned as a primitive area with natural resource extraction and mechanized recreation prohibited. The Algonquin Wildlands League first big public relations success was the announcement from the Algonquin Room of Toronto's prestigious Royal York Hotel in July of 1968 of a program called the Algonquin Alert. The idea was for the public to report any activity they saw that violated Algonquin's wilderness values. So that the general public would know what this looked like, Pimlock provided, quote, large, colorful maps, photographs, and slides depicting the recreational overuse and the commercial timber exploitation of the park. To no one's surprise, with Conway's encouragement, the crowd got worked up to a state of furious indignation. Apparently, the most shocking revelation at the time was the realization that Algonquin Park was treated just like any other piece of crown land when it came to logging. In other words, there was little or no protection. Driven to act, the then Minister of Lands and Forests, René Brunel, orchestrated the creation of a provisional master plan that was released that October. As shared in the previous podcasts, this provisional plan was completely unsatisfactory. Only 5% of Algonquin Park was designated as primitive, and these pockets of land were small and scattered all over the park. Though 500 feet no-cut shoreline reservations along lakes, rivers, and portages was established, the only concession to preservationists was the prohibition of logging during July and August, when park visitorship was at its peak. To no surprise, the plan was not well received and public hearings held by the Department of Lands and Forests in November of that year attracted over a 1,000 people, with 110 briefs submitted. These included one from every major conservation group in Ontario. In addition, a large following read with interest what was reported in the newspapers. As Wareki reported, for the next two years, both sides, the Forest Industry and the Algonquin Wildlands League, waged a, quote, incredible publicity campaign featuring press tours through Algonquin, speeches to local associations, articles in the popular press, 
open seminars and intensive lobbying. In response, in the spring of 1969, the Ontario government launched a task force of senior officials whose objective was to prepare a revised Algonquin Park Master Plan, and they were to do so by 1975. As Warecki wrote, the task force immediately launched the largest research effort in Canadian parks history. It produced or commissioned over 70 technical papers on virtually every aspect of the park, including its ecology, geology, and recreational use. To ensure that the pressure was maintained, Pimlot had published in Canadian Audubon magazine an educational piece called The Struggle to Save a Park. It documented Algonquin's natural and human history and featured provocatively captioned photographs of logging machinery, sawmills, crowded campsites, gravel pits, and lumber-hauling highways in the park. Public criticism didn't stop, so in September 1969, the Ontario government announced the creation of the Algonquin Provincial Park Advisory Committee, the first of its kind, with former Premier Leslie Frost as its first chairperson. Eighteen months later, in May of 1971, a brief was tabled in the Ontario legislature that declared that, quote, Algonquin should become the average man's wilderness, a phrase invented by Frost to appeal to the public, where he can escape for a while from the ever-increasing pressures of urban living. Certain natural zones would be created to protect the uniqueness of certain areas, and the government would create a crown corporation or organize a consortium of logging companies to manage all lumber operations. The summer of 1971 was spent by the task force assessing various policy alternatives, and in July of 1973, the creation of the Algonquin Forest Authority was announced. Logging licenses were replaced with supply agreements. Logging was to be prohibited in all of the 53 natural and historic zones that were also established. There were all kinds of other policy changes that I've shared in previous episodes, all of which fit into Pimlot's vision for the park. Though there were many objections when finally announced in 1974, the Algonquin Park Master Plan was a political compromise that Pimlot recognized was a step in the right direction. With a published set of goals and guidelines, the park would no longer, or at least was less likely, to be subject to the whims of administrators, politicians, and the destructive activities of loggers and recreationists. In the fall of 1974, the Provincial Parks Council, made up of concerned citizens, was established as an ongoing advisory board. Its job was to monitor the implementation of the master plan and, where needed, advise the minister on policy issues from time to time. Though he started with his research on wolves, Pimlot's long-term impact on the park has been profound. His encouragement and support to the Algonquin Wildlands League and his skills along with Walter Gray in using the media to great effect shook the Ontario public out of its complacency. This resulted in more public input into Algonquin Park's decision-making and the creating of a preservation sentiment and protectionist policy towards Algonquin Park that still exists to this day. Though he died young at the age of 59 in 1978 after a long battle with cancer, he left a tremendous legacy, including the elimination of the wolf bounty in Ontario and the launching of wolf conservation programs in Europe. Even today, Nature Canada honors him annually 
through their Douglas H. Pimlot Award that is presented to individuals who have demonstrated a significant contribution throughout their lifetime through words and deeds to the conservation of Canada's biodiversity, landscapes, and wilderness. In my next podcast episode, we'll fast forward to the 1990s and another Algonquin Wolf research project that was conducted for 12 years by Pimlot student John Taberge, his wife Mary, and a new generation of dedicated wolf researchers. Here's one last note from the Wildlife Research Station. Located in the heart of Algonquin Provincial Park, the not-for-profit Algonquin Wildlife Research Station has been pioneering biological research, wildlife conservation, and student training in the natural sciences for over 75 years. Today, the facility hosts some of the longest-term ecological studies in the world, which continue to provide invaluable baseline information for the protection of lands, waters, and their inhabitants. The Algonquin Wildlife Research Station is supported by user fees and donations. Visit algonquinwrs.ca to learn more and offer your support for their ongoing work in environmental research, teaching, and education.